So without any further ado, I want to give, uh, give the podium over to Rabbi Tarek, my good friend, and welcome uh, from Memphis to Alon Shfut, uh, where the rabbi uh, teaches and lives. Okay, welcome from Alon Shfut. Um, Zoom has, in the corona crisis, has enabled people to connect across this great globe uh, with communities and with people they wouldn't otherwise have the ability for face-to-face connections. So that's been something I've appreciated, despite all the struggle and the quarantine and the quiet. But here I have a very different feeling. I'm connecting with people who I feel very much at home with. And I've had the opportunity to spend several Shabbosos with, several very special moments. And it's a real credit to you. And obviously, whatever credit you deserve is because of your leader and um, the tone he sets and the friendship he shows and the dignity that he imbues the entire community with. So it's just a pleasure to be with you. I'm looking at some of the names. I actually remember some of the names and people that we've spent time together with. And hopefully God and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will uh, once again provide the opportunity for face-to-face contact, face-to-face interaction. Until that day comes, we'll have to suffice with long-distance interaction. But thank you, Rabbi Finkelstein, for uh, your what's close to 40-year friendship. And you're a little bit older than me, so not just friendship and mentorship and being able to look at you as a role model and... Um, and uh, your wonderful children that have had the chance to to teach and to meet. So, Mirz Hashem, this is a time for us just to thank one another for everything we've shared in the past, and to hope that Mirz Hashem will have future opportunities to bond, not just through a computer screen. Torah is compared to three different liquids. Torah is so cosmic and so vast that it's difficult to capture it with one metaphor or one idea. And even within one category, such as liquids, that's only one category that Torah is compared to. There are many different liquids that Torah is comparable to. The obvious one is water, the source of life, heaven descends from heaven. That's the gimme, that's the obvious one. But there are two less than obvious metaphors for Torah. And in many ways, they conflict and they complement. There's always a complementary nature between ideas that seem to conflict because ideas that are larger than life have to be distilled along many layers, not just one one-dimensional layer. So on the one hand, Torah is compared to oil. It's based on a verse in the beginning of Shir Hashirim. And oil, especially olive oil, which was the oil that our ancient sages had access to, the oil of, our, of Scripture, olive oil takes a really long time to go rancid. Olive oil, remember, when you're getting olive oil on the shelf, you're getting it half a year, three-quarters of a year after it's been manufactured and bottled and shipped. Olive oil, three, four, five years. Today we have different forms of oil, lubricants. can last a while. I know uh, I have a chips that would make french fries now during Corona, so I poured a lot of oil into my french fry maker in the beginning to give my kids a treat, and we've been using it all summer. <laughs> Maybe time to shame some of that oil. So Torah lasts a long time. It's timeless, and the ideas that HaKadosh Baruch Hu voiced at Harsinai, they don't change, they will not change, they're beyond time, they're beyond space, they're eternal, They'll outlast this world. They predated this world. They're larger than us and larger than history and larger than human experience. So Torah is compared to oil. But it's also compared to wine. In that same verse in the beginning of Shir Hashirim, Kitovim Dodecha Miyayin, and it's compared to wine because wine is very specific depending upon the context, the types of grapes, how long it ferments, how long it's bottled, so wine changes, wine is part of human manufacture, it doesn't grow in the tree and it's bottled. And Torah doesn't change, but each generation has to be reformulated and applied and fermented and tweaked. So we believe that the timeless Torah provides messages 
even though the generations change. That's really the challenge of religion beyond George Floyd, beyond social protests, to take this ancient document that was delivered to our ancestors at Harsinai. They wore sandals, they didn't wear Nikes, um, they, they didn't have uh, cell phones, and it seems very ancient. They rode on goats and camels and donkeys. And, and even though we live in a very technological world, which we feel is very different, to render all those ancient wisdoms that God himself delivered to us as relevant and resonant and addressing. That's really the challenge to be a religious Jew holistically, organically, not to create divisions. I read the Torah, but then I consult with the local newspapers and internet for my cultural ideas and my cultural energy. So we're now at a very important juncture, uh, a very important intersection, and we've been gone to rethink and reformulate what role society plays. And to be honest, that reformulation started well before the George Floyd riots. Because until March 13th, or whenever Corona consciousness awoken, awakened, we all went about our lives, and society, that was in the background. We planned our lives, we shaped our relationships. Very few of us, maybe rabbis, certainly politicians, maybe people involved in municipal planning, very few of us actually thought about where society is heading. What are its values? What values are valuable, or what values are foreign, what values are overlapping? Now, all of a sudden, Corona said, well, you're withdrawing from society. Reconsider. Corona nudged, nudged us to rethink what role society plays in our lives. Well, if Corona nudged us slightly, softly, well, the social protests that really are taking place across the world, but obviously with, with greater force and greater intensity in the United States, they're forcing us to reconsider social hierarchies, social dynamics, what type of society we envision, who we want to live with, how do we want to contribute to society. So we have to look back to the Torah to provide the baselines and the parameters. It's not as if we're going to open a chumash and we're going to find the name George, Lloyd, George Floyd in a chumash. It's not going to appear. We're going to find the word social protest, social equality. But if we're attendant to our, the Torah that Hashem delivered and the way that our rabbis developed it, then we can establish basic parameters. Obviously, each case is different, each city is different, each country is different. So no one here can apply or impose one general, one-size-fits-all approach, but the guidelines, the framework, what values should guide how we formulate these ideas. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. And I want to divide the conversation into four different sections. Okay, but before those four sections, the basics should be obvious, and they've been voiced by almost every major institution, Jewish institution, any religious moral institution, opposes discrimination of race, religion, skin color, number one, and we're horrified by any scenes of brutality, especially when brutality is committed by people who have been empowered with authority and with ability. So those are clear to every moral, sensitive human being. On the other hand, our unwavering support of racial equality doesn't in any way lessen our desire for an efficient but humane police force capable of providing security and dignity. Right? Those are very, very general. Almost every organization in one way or another has voiced those, those frameworks, those parameters. But beyond that, Assuming we support the desire for equality of race, religion, skin color, and assuming, of course, we require a police force to protect the weak and the vulnerable against aggressors and aggression 
Here are the four questions I'd like to talk about this evening. Number one, why? Why do we support racial equality? Why is it important to us? Where does it fit within our overall system of values? Number two, relatedly, how does it integrate? Okay, is it a value, but what role does that value play within the overall pantheon, the overall set Jewish values? Then I want to offer offer three cautionary notes. As much as we endeavor to support the desire and the agenda, here are some dangers that we have to be careful about. Discretionary notes. And then finally, probably one of the most touchy issues, and I'll just provide, again, a very general sense is, well, where do we draw that line between calibrating, on the one hand, racial equality, freedom, human dignity, and law enforcement, some say law and order, how do we navigate the two? And again, very general, but when push comes to shove, if the two conflict, how are we to begin to assess that question? Those are the four issues we'll talk about tonight. Number one, why does a Jew support? Number two, what role does it play? Number three, cautionary notes. That's with every idea that you support. You have to be cautious about the level of support. Everything, uh, what did Aristotle say? Plato, Aristotle, vice is just virtue taken to excess. So everything taken excessively can become a vice. And then finally, how do we balance between the two? So let's begin. I'm going to share a screen. I provided a source sheet, which I'm sure has been shared. I'll share the screen as well, but I'll quote minimally. So even if you're not following the quotes and the text is not your thing, I'll try to explain. So don't feel as if there's going to be only text-based, but the text hopefully will help. And on the other hand, if there are people joining the share that want to read more of the text, feel free to read more of the text. I try to include larger segments, but then underline and bold and highlight the parts that are most relevant. There's a famous discussion that took place between Rabbi Akiva, well-known Rabbi Akiva, one of the greats of our tradition, and his star student. His star student was Ben Azai, who, according to folklore, even was engaged possibly to Rabbi Akiva's daughter. He's never married, he died early, but it sounds as if there was some, something in the, some work in progress for Ben Azai, the star student of Rabbi Akiva, to marry Rabbi Akiva's daughter. Rabbi Akiva claimed that the central Pasuk in the entire Torah, as we all know, is the Pasuk of the Ahavta Lerecha Kamocha. It's a baseline of moral behavior. Treat people like you treat yourself, express love to others. Very few people know that his disciple Ben Azai offered a different verse. And it's less bold. It seems very generic, very humdrum. And you ask yourself, why would this be a more important Pasuk than Rabbi Akiva's Pasuk? So Ben Azai said, in place of the Ahavta Lerecha Kamocha, Zesefer Toldos Ha'adam. Now, of course, he's referring, I don't know, something came up with my sources. He's referring to this Pasuk in the beginning of the fifth parak of Genesis, Abracious. This is the book of man, the day that he was created by God. He was created in God's image. Human beings have an image of God. Doesn't mean that God looks like human beings, but it means that we are endowed with traits that no other creature possesses. Free will consciousness, moral thought, emotions, dreams, cognitive speech, seven or eight qualities that no other life force possess. Some possess communication, dolphins communicate, but it's not cognitive. Dolphins don't have an internet. They click at one another, sonar communication for hibernation, for migration, for procreation. We have an internet. We speak, we share ideas. We're sharing ideas now that hopefully will enrich our lives. Every human being has that. 
And by stressing this Pasuk, Ben Azai is basically broadening Rabbi Akiva's Pasuk. Rabbi Akiva's Pasuk was more national. Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. Reacha suggests people who have a common agenda, common religious agenda, common historical destiny. Reacha is a limiting phrase. Ben Azai spoke about the Pasuk in Bereshis, Zesefer Toldos Adam, the Book of Man. Every human being, saint or sinner, possesses that divine image. And if we revere God, we revere all his creatures. And if we revere God, we revere the pinnacle of his creation, which is man. And that is why a Jew supports the dignity of the human condition, primarily, obviously, I'm assuming because we want a better society and we want a more efficient society and rights for all. But the core of a religious person is that every person has a Tzalem Elohim, or as the Pasuk writes, a Demos Elohim. And even Rabbi Akiva, who cited the Pasuk, which is more national and parochial, even Rabbi Akiva distilled the balance. It's a very important balance. On the one hand, to appreciate and to celebrate the unique historical calling of a Jew. We are chosen, not for privilege, not for luxury, but for responsibility. Not to insulate ourselves, but to lead the world. We haven't led the world in 2,000 years, so for many people, this seems odd. How will Jews lead the world? But it will happen. It may already be happening. It's hard to know. It's hard to decode history. But our agenda is a universalist agenda, to deliver a world of welfare for all mankind on their terms. But we were chosen. On the other hand, every human being has that Selim Elohim. And Rabbi Akiva distilled this balance. A very famous statement of Rabbi Akiva. It's a Mishnah and Perkei Avot, which we finished reading, some read even during the summer. Chaviv Adam shenivra b'tselem. Man has a tselem elokim. Chaviv Adam shenivra b'tselem. Every man has a tselem elokim, and he actually quotes a Pasuk, which is parallel to the Pasuk ben Azai quoted. B'tselem elokim masasa Adam. That being said, Chaviv in Yisrael shenikru banim lamakom. We are God's children, and as God's children, is a special calling. And unfortunately today, the Jewish world is becoming a bit polarized. There are the universalists who are very attuned to that which we share with everyone around us, who sometimes find their Jewish identity attenuated. And sometimes there are deeply, deeply nationalistic Jews who deeply believe in the unique calling of Jews and their view of the other borders on racism, bigotry, or xenophobia. And true, Talmina Rabbi Akiva distilled the two, and not only as separate poles, but the merging of the two. We are chosen because the world needs a vanguard to display the presence of Hashem. So if we're not universalists, our national calling is hollow. And if we don't have a national calling, our universalist mission is deficient. What is our mission? If we're universalists, just to share a common fate, but to call the world to higher ground, challenge them to morality and to monotheism. So of course, we support the dignity of every human being. And whenever a Jew witnesses injustice, he is irate, and he or she rises up in moral indignation to combat injustice. And at the seminal moment of Jewish identity, when our leader was chosen, we don't see Moshe as a scholar, we don't see him as a spiritual guru. Our first portrait of him is a person who cannot weather moral injustice. And he sees a Jew being whipped to death, and he intervenes. And he's already a fugitive because he has killed an Egyptian. And the next day he sees Jews squabbling. Everyone squabbles. Come to Israel. You'll find squabbles all around. Everyone's fighting, arguing. Can't. 
And then the next day, it's not a day later, but it's a couple days later in the narrative, he's now in Midian. He's a fugitive. He's AWOL. People, there's a bolo out for him. They're looking for him at every bar and every, every motel. And he visits the local bar, which those days was the bear, the well of water. And he sees some women being abused or in some ways discriminated against by the local shepherds who don't give them their fair share of water. Source number four, and if, you, if, if I were a fugitive, I don't want to start a fight in a bar. First thing, the shepherds come and they chase away these poor damsels in distress. Moshe rises, saves the day, feeds the sheep, gets himself a wife. In the meantime, part of the deal, package deal, family, place to hide, moral indignation. That is at the core of our Jewish identity. Without it, then our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is flawed. If we're not able to detect divine image in his creatures, we have lost trace of Hashem's creation. We are blinding our eyes. We've lost the trail. We've lost the scent. And because of human dignity, we want to shower human beings with as much assistance, dignity, equality as we can for three reasons. One is because we want to act as Hashem is. We can't understand Him. The ABCs of monotheism, and we'll talk a little bit later about monotheism, is that we simply can't understand Him. We are beings that are fundamentally different than Him. Our thoughts, different than His thoughts. We're binary. For us, it's day or night. In Israel, it's night. In Memphis, it's day. In Mississippi, it's, it can't be both. Ask Hashem what it is. He'll say, Yotzer Or, Uvari Choshech. Or says, Shalom. Hashem lives out of time. Hashem lives out of place. Hashem isn't divisible. And please don't ask me to explain any of these to you because I can't. I don't have the processor. No human being has. Philosophy is an attempt to try to approximate knowledge of God in human terms. It's a flawed enterprise. Some find it helpful, but by its nature, it's handicapped because we don't possess the vocabulary to define God. Any term that we conjure is incompatible. So Moshe Rabbeinu, in Parshat Kitisa, begs God for a little bit more knowledge. Let me know about you. I want to understand you a little bit more deeply. And the response is resistant. Even you, Moshe Rabbeinu, even at this apex, topographically and philosophically, you're on this mountain, you're close to me, you're alone, you're the man of God, you can't see me. You can see my back. That doesn't mean back and front. It means you can, can't see my essence. You can understand my participation in this world. And sometimes you need to wait a while. That's why it's the back. You can't understand things in their moment. So what does Hashem lessen Moshe with? My ways. Hashem, Hashem, of course, we all know. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu is moral. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God is kind. God is compassionate. And it's such an important message during difficult times. We don't feel a compassionate God right now. Look out your window. That compassion isn't on display. But part of our belief is we can't always judge God by events in this world that may have a longer arc and a very different function that we can't discern. We, we maintain that profile of Hashem, even if the world seems 
racked in agony and dysfunctional. And we maintained it 80 years ago during the Holocaust, and we maintained it for 2,000 years during the dark tunnel of Jewish history when the world itself was convulsing. The world itself was plunged into darkness because when the Jews left Yerushalayim, what else do you expect of the world if not for a 1,000-year period of feudalism and medieval mediocrity? Because when the Jews leave Jerusalem, the world, the world is fissured. And it took the world 1,500 years to recover. And finally, 500 years ago or so, enlightenment and reason and science and democracy and capitalism. And the apex of that, or the climax of that, is, okay, the world is now ready for the Jews to return to their land and return to their proper role in society, to lead the world, to inspire. This takes hundreds of years. And it can happen tomorrow necessarily. It may, but it may not. So that's the first reason we shower dignity on Salem Elohim, because that's, who, that's how we see Hashem, and the closest we can shape ourselves and sculpt our lives is to be like Him. Number two, because if we want to inspire the world, we have to be role models for the world. And if we're role models of the world, we have to present religion to the world in a way that's attractive, and that's favorable, and that's inspiring. And especially in the modern era, if people sense immorality, hypocrisy, lack of moral integrity in religion, they'll be turned off. I don't know if this was true 700 years ago. 700 years ago, people didn't live in a moral world. They didn't have aspirations for a moral world, a moral society. Life was drudgery. Life was dreary. Life was suffering, discrimination. But that's not our world. We've revamped our world. We live in a world of personal freedom, in a world of dignity, human rights. And we have to be able to present religion in that tone so that within and without people will say, as HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants them to say, Ushmartem Vasisem, source number eight, When they see and study religion, and they see the example of a Jew, they'll be inspired. These are Jews. Their lifestyle is worthy of emulation. Their family, their community, their personal dignity. We have to be trendsetters. We have to set tones. And sometimes we have to go beyond the letter of the law with a recognition, acknowledgement that's our role. The Yishalmi, I'll just quote these are very, very hard words, so please, if you're not familiar with the words of the Yishalmi, please don't be frustrated. But just for those who may be, the Yishalmi cites a story of Shimon ben Shetach, who worked in cotton. He was a cotton picker, which was a very, very labor-intensive job. So his student said, why don't you buy a donkey? And then you'll be able to use the donkey for porting, for, for labor. So he bought a donkey from a local Gentile, happened to be an Arab, and there was a jewel hanging around the donkey. And the student said, you don't have to return this jewel because it's a lost item, and the letter of the law means you can keep the lost item. And he said, ma'atem sovrim, this is the language. What do you think I am, he told his students, a barbarian? Am I barbaric? Interesting language, that if you don't return a lost item, you're barbarian. Boy, Havi Shimon ben Shetach. Shimon ben Shetach, he spoke about himself in third person. Nishma, Baruch Alon do you die. I'd rather hear the Gentiles praise the God of the Jews, even if I have to suffer a financial loss. And he returned this very expensive diamond. And the story continues that Arab actually blessed the God of the Jews. Baruch Hashem, he said, the God of Shimon ben Shetach. When's the last time you acted in a way? that at least was capable of causing people to be so inspired. 
because you did the right thing, because you stuck to your principles. Now, maybe the world is still broken. I don't just mean corona breaking. It could be the world is still broken morally in a larger sense. They're not ready to recite that blessing, but that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. Just because we can't catalyze the response doesn't mean we shouldn't offer it. So that's the second reason, not just because we want to be like God, but also because we want to present this system of Hashem in a way that is palatable and favorable. And the third reason that we shower people with God's dignity is because we believe that Torah and God's will can lead to the perfection of three spheres of human experience. It improves our mind, our thought, our analysis. It improves our personality, our midos, who we are as people. And it also will lead, we believe, to the most utopian society imaginable. I can't tell you why, because again, we live in a world, not corona dysfunction, we live so far away from revelation, we live so far away from all living in, in, in the world of, of benevolent monarchy. But we believe, as the Rambam, Maimonides writes, in his Guide to the Perplex, a very, very famous line, he writes, Who shakal mitzvah me'elu tariag mitzvos, all the mitzvos of 613, is intended for improvement of das amiti, our thoughts, nesina seder yosher, the perfect society, or improving our personal traits. And then repeats it towards the end. It will lead to the perfection of deot, thought, midot, traits, uvemase hahanhaga hamedinis, and the perfect society. So those are three reasons that a Jew is driven. We see divine image in every human being. We want to behave to that human being as God behaves to us and to them. We want to display to an entire planet the moral resonance, the moral reverberance of Judaism. And we want to endeavor, not just for ourselves. The first two ideas would be true even if we were living on a desert island with another Gentile. We weren't building any society. We were just eating coconuts and waiting to be saved. We still have a responsibility to imitate God. We still have a responsibility to inspire that one person or those ten castaways. But we don't live on an island. We live in communities. And for the first time in history, we've been empowered to be active participants in building a community. For 2,000 years, these concepts of Jews contributing to their community were absurd. We're hiding in dungeons, hiding in basements, waiting out pogroms, recovering from pogroms. Where were we June 14th, 1820, recovering from the Easter massacres? But now it's June 18th, June 14th, 2020, and I was thinking about what type of society we'd like to live in that's, a, that's in tuned to the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's the why. The why is Salam Elohim, image of God, imitating God, being moral like Him, displaying Judaism to others, and of course building the utopian society. Now, it's absolutely crucial, since this is driven by such a deep religious value, it's absolutely important to cast this value, social justice, social equality, within our overall religious experience, proportionally. Sometimes the greatest mistakes in life is disproportion, where we take a value and we attribute disproportionate importance to it. And that's part of the 
challenge of integration. Over the last 200 years, there have been some Jews who, for whatever reason, veered away from ritual, veered away from tradition, veered away from even sometimes a belief in a monotheistic God, and allowed the crusade for social justice to replace ritual, to replace festivals, to replace observance, to replace the hierarchy with God. They thought that if they could reorder social hierarchies, they could abandon the hierarchy that's most important, that's most eternal between God and us, his creature. And that's why the two most important locations, when the Torah describes morality, ethics, the society we're constructing, in each location, they're juxtaposed to ritual, festivals, mikdash, sacrifices. So, for example, the first section, Parshas Mishpatim, laws of ethics, civil law, judiciary, protecting vulnerable people, very resonant. The laws of slavery in those days, unfortunately, because work was so labor-intensive, societies could not progress without manual labor. So the first section of Mishpatim is how to treat a slave. Of course, when the Mashiach comes, one of slaves. That section, source number 14, the first section after our Sinai, without menshlachkeit and integrity, we're doomed. But then it continues. Why are the laws of festivals inserted into the laws of civility, integrity, morality? Because our festivals speak to the deep identity of a Jew, historical events that shaped who we are and the commemoration of those events through perpetual ritual. The same phenomena occurs in Sefer Devarim, in the section known as Shoftim. So the section of Shoftim is even more direct, not just about laws, but about judges and policemen. Shoftim, the Shotrim, Titen Lecha Bechol Shearecha. Very famous phrase, Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof, not just to passively invite justice and integrity, but to pursue it. That's the title of the Shear, Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof. And then the next section, a few seconds later, what happens when you have a case that must be adjudicated? Where should you travel to? The Kamta Vialita El Hamakom, source number 15. Visit the Beis Hamikdash. Visit the Kaanim. Visit the Levites, the Kaanim, the judges. Because our ability to administer justice has to draw from divine wisdom, and divine wisdom is channeled from Jerusalem. Divine wisdom is channeled through the temple. The Gemara actually says in Sanhedrin that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the grand court, the high court of the Jewish people, had to leave the Beis HaMikdash. Roman persecution was too distracting, was too destabilizing. And at that point, many, many of the offices and the rights and the roles of the high court were terminated. Because if the high court isn't sitting... Why would we care where they're sitting? As long as they're sitting in a quiet place where they can ponder, where they can think, they have access to their legal books. What difference does it make if they're sitting in Jerusalem or they're sitting on the beach? Because God delivers his wisdom to mankind and when we're sitting in the cradle of civilization, under the conduit, the channel that leads from his throne in heaven to the court below, then we could put someone to death and not a minute before and not without that ability. 
So to make sure that we don't create a religion which is pivoted solely on social justice, social equality, and solely on social justice and social equality, which man can bestow, both of these major sections, listen to what they sound like, Parshas Mishpatim, the laws, Parshas Shoftim, civil society, are each appended to Yom Tov, Mikdash, Mizbeach, Karbanos. That's part of the challenge. To accept the pursuit of social justice and human equality, but not to let it consume a disproportionate role, to be able to integrate it. If we're trying to appreciate human beings as God's creatures, and we're trying to be like God, and we're trying to, and we're attempting to showcase religion, that whole process, that whole process is vacant if it isn't complemented and buffeted by a relationship with God, an observance of His will, and a submission. It has to be one network, one component, rather than separate cells of Jewish identity. And second of all, as hard as we try, and as much as we believe that we're veering in a modern world and we're evolving to a better state of society, and hopefully this, is, hopefully this will be part of the evolution, who knows? It'll be one step forward, two steps back. As hard as we try, full equality, a fully moral utopian society will always be elusive to man. And it will only be achieved when we achieve the redemption of history. As hard as we try, human conventions will always be imperfect. By their definition, we're flawed. We're limited. We're balancing dozens of balls in the air. We try as best we can to calibrate and to recalibrate. But every action will have a reaction. Every advance will lead to a, to a, to a complication. And so we have to constantly revisit ourselves and doubt for the layman is integrity for the scholar. If we're scholars and doubt is healthy to doubt ourselves. If you ask me to capture the emotion I felt most deeply over the last three months, someone asked this question in one of the Zoom get-togethers, fear, frustration, fatigue, all of them are true. But if you ask me to dig deep, doubt. Everything I thought of myself has been stripped away. I don't go to work for three months. I prayed in my corner. No one knew I lived, just my family. And I, well, who am I? Because normally my identity was just, I woke up in the morning and just, it, I rebooted. It was Groundhog Day. I went to work, met my peers, provided my shiur and my lectures, came home, made the, and all of a sudden, every, every layer that was false was stripped away. And I say, well, who am I? It's frustrating, but it's extremely existential. And I think it led me to a deeper sense of who I am. Because I couldn't fall upon these external rings, these external layers. I have to make hard decisions. Who I am, who I want to be, what, how I value my life. Am I prepared to die? Well, if you're prepared to die, you've got to have your affairs. And I don't just mean your will and your finances, but your, your sense of values, your identity, what you value, what you don't value. So if we take a look at the very famous, there are plenty of verses in Scripture, but probably the most famous verse is Isaiah chapter 11. Messiah will have the Spirit of God descend upon him. Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of insight. A religious insight. And he will be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There'll be almost a fragrance. You'll be able to smell it. His fear will be palpable. 
I am sorry, I don't know how to erase my my, my program is not, is failing me a little bit now. But Velola Mare Navi Shpot, he won't just judge based on his his ration. Velola Mishmaz Naviochiach, and he won't just base based upon hearsay. So it won't just be cognitive, it won't just be cerebral, it will be religiously inspired, and of course this will enable the world of Vigar Zevim Keves, where wolves will reside with sheep. Then Amer and leopards and Gidi or bats will frolic with lambs. The Egel Kafir Marie Yachdav and wild predators with calves, because this will be the final stage that we're reaching. So that's how we integrate. We integrate number one by creating a network of values that all cross pollinate, and we're interested in social justice because not just for practical reasons, because this is a divine mandate. And if we fail at this, we're failing to appreciate God. And we're failing to build the society he wants from us. But if we attend to this at the expense of how we keep Shabbos, or how we keep our tefillin, or how we keep whatever halachic observance we ignore or neglect, it's imbalance. And that imbalance, it's flawed. And if we're so arrogant as to believe that human beings are capable of utopia, well, that's a fiction. We won't reach utopia, but that doesn't acquit us from covering some miles between where we are and that final exit of history, putting some miles under our tires. And finally, if we're Jewish and we believe and we feel our Jewish experience deeply, then we have an even greater mandate for social equality. And that's for two reasons. Number one, because we were there. And we were there, not just coincidentally, we were there intentionally. Our formative experience, the seminal moment of Jewish identity, is the exodus from Egypt. And in Egypt, we were discriminated. We were victimized. We suffered. And we suffered so that we developed the capacity to sympathize with human suffering and to be the world's conscience and to arrive at moments of suffering and try as best we can. Again, for 2,000 years, these words were almost offensive. They were so absurd and facetious. A Jew's going to change society? Just run and hide in the forest. That's why it's taking Jews so long to adapt to the new reality. We have to start thinking ourselves, not just as victims or as spectators or sideliners, but as frontliners, at least for ourselves. The world may not be ready for that. But we're going to dictate that pace. So God reminds us that at the very dawn of time, you should show love and sympathy to a convert, a convert being, of course, a person, but also a metaphor, people who are at the lower rungs or are, are dispossessed socially and socioeconomically. Because we were there. And it's not coincidence, by the way, God planted us there. And in particular, and in particular, any time we witness brutality, violence, perpetrated by a person of uniform, that should send shockwaves. That should traumatize us. Because that's where we were for 2,000 years. Because for 2,000 years, soldiers marched into town and raped us and beat us to a pulp, and stole our funds. And for 2,000 years, policemen weren't too kind to Jews. 
because the world wasn't democratic. It was whimsical and arbitrary. And we were always on the losing end of any equation. I sent some pictures on the source sheet of various Haggadot of Pesach. And in some of these Haggadot, when they illustrate the Russia, the evil person, how would you illustrate the Russia? So many modern Haggadot, it's someone that looks like a skeptic, like a Spinoza. He's standing there with his hands in his pocket, pontificating about God in a way that seems very um, lascivous and, and very predetermined. But in some of the more ancient Haggadot, 300, 400 years ago, it's always a picture of a soldier. Here is a soldier that looks like a Greek or Russian soldier. It's hard to know, because sometimes it's really Asav with a knife in his pocket. <laughs> so if he has a shield, he's not just carrying a knife, pocket knife, like from my old days in Brooklyn, a pocket knife. But uh, if he has a shield, he's probably a soldier also. He's not just carrying a pocket knife. So here's the Russia with a shield. Here's a more of a, of a medieval, probably, soldier with some of the uh, nice dress and the feather in his cap. Either way, that's how Jews saw policemen and soldiers. So I would be dishonest and morally hypocritical not to feel what some sectors of our society are experiencing when they are stopped at a roadblock. I don't feel fear, certainly not in Israel when I'm stopped for a speeding ticket. I feel fear my pocket's going to suffer, but I don't feel... And even, even when a couple of months ago I was in America, I was driving a thing from Cleveland to Chicago overnight, or vice versa, Chicago to Cleveland, right in the middle of the farmlands, and there was just empty space, and I was just driving, driving, and I lost control of it. I lost control. I lost a sense of how fast I was going. And a state trooper pulled me over on the side, and he just saw I was dressed in a tie, and I had my white shirt on. And I, I, He saw that I, I didn't feel fear. I felt like he was trying to protect my life, and he was pointing something out to me, and worse comes to worse, he delivered. I didn't feel as if this would go south quickly. So if anything, our Judaism has to accentuate and amplify these feelings. Let me summarize, because I see we're, we're, we're a little bit short of time. Let me move quickly into section 3 and section 4. Section number 1 is why. Divine image, imitating God, perfect society, presenting Judaism with a moral spirit. Section number 2 is to be consistent with an overarching Jewish identity and a sensitivity to how we've suffered from the formative moments of Egypt, even as recently as what I feel is the conclusion of history of the Holocaust. I want to say conclusion. I'm just going to end tomorrow. I'm just going to blow the whistle. I was waiting for someone to blow the coronavirus. Oh, it's all over. Blow the whistle. No, no whistles are going to happen, but certainly we're veering towards the end of history. Three disclaimers, very quickly. Three caveats. Three cautionary messages. Number one, as engaged as we become, in the struggle, the protest, call it a struggle, call it an agenda, call it a movement for social and racial and economic equality, we mustn't and cannot conflate the project of social equality and to prevent racial discrimination with the story of anti-Semitism. They're not the same. They seem the same. People are suffering. Sometimes they're looped together. I remember when the Pittsburgh massacre happened, People were putting up pictures on their Facebook or their social media. We're against all forms of discrimination. They're different. Racial discrimination is the ugly side of human bigotry. People who make judgments about others, uninformed, um, selfish, full of hate, based on their race, based on the way they look, based on all sorts of factors, based on their sexual gender. That's the ugly side of humanity. Anti-Semitism 
is not man in his ugliest. Anti-Semitism is historical because we were chosen and we are the whistleblowers and we call the world to higher ground and the world doesn't like a conscience that challenges it. The Gemara says in Shabbos, it was on the Dafyomi a couple of days ago, those who study the Dafyomi, why was Midbar Sinai called Midbar Sinai? It was that moment that anti-Semitism was born. It isn't a socioeconomic development based on slavery or based on 200 years or 500 years. A Jew believes in metaphysical forces that shape human behavior that can't be traced by statistics, interviews, and ration. If you went over to a white supremacist and to a person who's an anti-Semite, a liberal anti-Semite in a BDS supporter. And you ask them, why do you hate the Jews? He will not quote the Gemara and Shabbos that I just underlined because the Jews are God's people and they challenge us. But they are deep, visceral forces that shape the human experience that aren't always detectable. Do not conflate anti-Semitism with racial, sexual, gender, religious discrimination. One is a narrative within a particular context based on misinformed. One is larger and it shapes human history and will only be resolved when human history is resolved. Number one. Number two. Why should we participate in racial equality when so many of the other people who are involved are our opponents? We're not going to find friends. This was one of the great disillusionments of Jews who were involved in social crusades in the middle part of last century, trying to assist minorities. All that effort didn't win us any friends. It's not as if the Hispanic community or the African-American community became best friends with the Jewish community and supported our agenda. There's enough hostility directed towards us. Answer to that question is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We always act l'shma, l'shem shemayim, based on what's right. Not based on convenience and accessorizing ourselves, future compensation or reciprocity. A man of principle does what's right because it's right. Even if no one is watching and no one cares. So we're not trying to win friends. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. We're not trying to create allies or alliances that the next time there's anti-Semitism, they will support ours. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's likely people will. It doesn't make a difference. Courage is not dependent on external ratification. Courage is adherence to principles regardless. Because principles are larger than convenience. And the third disclaimer is, be careful. Because we may participate in social equality, but there are those who'd like to distort or pervert this narrative and associate it with a different narrative one that's very dear to us. And let me show you a picture where you can look at your page which captures that perversion. This is a headline in a left-leaning newspaper in Israel a few weeks, about two weeks ago. Israel isn't George Floyd. It's the bad cop. Look at the poster. That is a disgrace to George Floyd and it's a disgrace to our people. Our life in Israel is complex and it is rife with moral challenges. And just this last weekend, there was a moral complexity because 
who knows, we're still decoding what happened, but in Hebron, in Hebron, there were some Palestinian youths who were being attacked by Jewish youths, and the Jewish-Israeli soldiers intervened and protected the Palestinians' life, and now we're decoding with the Palestinians the provocateurs or just the victims. We're trying hard. But we have the most moral army in the world. And many of the, many of the children from Memphis have served in that army. And they can relate to you firsthand how they were asked to sacrifice their life and their limb rather than carpet bombing large blocks or large apartment buildings. And my son is serving in Golani now, and he tells the same story. And it's a disgrace to George Floyd because the parameters are different and the variables are different, but it's just a chance for carpetbaggers to take a ride on the latest protest and stick it to us. And when you have carpetbaggers, they're disgracing both. Don't use Holocaust words about anything but the Holocaust because it's a disgrace to Holocaust victims. Don't call anyone a Nazi. Don't ever use the word ghetto unless you're describing the Warsaw Ghetto. Don't use the word gas chamber because it is an insult to people who, who perished in ghettos and were cremated in, in, in the gas chambers and who faced real Nazi atrocity. Those are three discretionary warnings. Number one, don't conflate anti-Semitism with the pursuit of racial equality. They're different. Number two, we may or may not win friends and allies. It doesn't matter. Number three, we're challenged in Israel. And HaKadosh Baruch is providing us with a challenge. But it's really, really different. It's almost imbecilic. It's, it's, it's sophomoric to try to create those equations. Intellectually embarrassing. It's just a quick hit just to gain a headline, just to gain a popular headline. It's, it's not morally offensive. It's intellectually bankrupt. The person who drew that equation should be fired for lack of professionalism, not because of moral standpoints. It's simply extensive. It's like I would associate what happens in the Lone Shvur to what happens in Hawaii. There are different contexts, different variables. It's amateur hour. And then finally, the fourth part of tonight's presentation, which again I'll be very brief about, is probably the trickiest part. Number one, why? Number two, how do we integrate it? Number three, what are some of the cautionary measures? Discretionary concerns. Number four, well, everyone's in on social justice, right? We all want everyone to be treated equally in the eyes of the law. But we need a vigorous and, and success or efficient enforcement, law and order. Maybe there are communities that are more prone to crime, maybe through no fault of their own, but our police force and security teams have to be more rigorous and more aggressive for deterrence sake. Okay, that's a difficult one. And as Rabbi Sim Finkelstein said, it would be dishonest and morally invasive for me to sit here on a lone foot and offer anyone in the United States my opinion about that. So with a lot of humility, I can just offer my sense of what Chazal would want from us and why. We want to try to reconcile the two. But if we have a dilemma, and we have a predicament, we have to sacrifice one on behalf of another, should we sacrifice a little bit of deterrence for a little bit of human dignity? Or should we sacrifice a little bit of human dignity? It's not the opposite. Or sacrifice human dignity on behalf of greater deterrence? By and large, the tone of our chazal is, that human dignity is so important that preserving it long-term 
is of such value that even if it slightly, again, these are slight nuance. I don't want anyone to draw long conclusions about in a nuanced fashion. So, for example, when the Torah describes the protocols of prosecuting someone who will get capital punishment, the Torah describes v'itzilu ha'edah The beitin, the Ada, should protect the murderer. What does that mean? Well, one of the most obvious ones is that although you can exonerate based on a one-person majority, let's say a, a based in that will sit in judgment of potential capital punishment is a 23-person court. So let's say the court is a 12 to 11 majority in favor of acquittal. That 12 to 11 majority will acquit, will exonerate a person. But a 12 to 11 majority will not acquit, will not prosecute, will not incriminate. It has to be a 13 to 10. What do you mean? A potential murderer or a potential great vi- person who violates federal crimes? can then say, well, I won't be prosecuted. Maybe it'll be 12 to 10. Maybe, uh, maybe it'll be 10, uh, 12 to 11. Be less deterrence. But we want to be compassionate in our prosecu- prosecutorial protocols. When we choose death penalties, there is a tendency to go soft. There's a tendency that when someone gets Srefa, which is burning, we don't put him on a stake and burn his body like a Salem witch hunt. We find a slightly more humane way of creating that effect with hot metals. And when the Torah isn't clear about what type of death penalty, we choose the easiest death penalty, which is choking. Again, in those days, obviously today we'd administer drugs. And What do you mean? Should it be a brutal form of stoning in front of a public view so that it will deter... Yeah, but it's not humane. So our compass should be pointing towards preferring the dignity of the human condition, even at the cost. That's just a compass. Compass doesn't tell you where to arrive at. It just gives you a general navigational sense. Here's a general navigational sense. Obviously, each case has to be really carefully applied. And I fear, uh, again, I'm an outsider. I'm just watching the demilitarized zone in Seattle, and I'm just watching the defunding of police forces. Again, I'm not current with all the ins and outs of what this means and entails, but bedlam, chaos. We can't imagine a world, especially a corona world, with a lot of stress and a lot of aggression, a lot of violence, a lot of financial pressure without enforcement. But again, I'm just sitting on the sidelines without facing the same complications. I have to walk out of my house and worry about violence or looting or so those are some general guidelines. To summarize, and I'll answer, I think there are one or two questions. We have to pivot our interest on a religious and theological part of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're not more from if we're more bigoted. You can have long sitzes, black tefillin, and eat a lot of matzah. It doesn't make you more from. It's about recognizing God as your creator, recognizing God as the creator of all mankind, recognizing dignity of human condition, celebrating behaving like God, showcasing religion, and creating a perfect society as best as human beings can. It's about realizing that as Jews, we've lived through this. And therefore, we, more sympathy is demanded from us. At least sympathy, maybe not policy decision, at least sympathy. Sometimes you can't change anything, but you can sympathize. And the language has to be a language of sympathy. You may come down very hard and very conservative in terms of your policies. 
but it's the way you speak and your recognition this is a complex situation and people are suffering and sometimes people have to suffer. Maybe there's no solution. Maybe we're not at the stage. We have a solution. I know this is veering off course, but I, I, I want to sensitize you to how tricky religion is. I don't think we're at the stage where we have a solution for homosexuality. It's God's will that people shouldn't involve in homosexual behavior. On the other hand, there are people, normal people like you and me, healthy people. They're not miscreants. They're not devils. They're not monsters who feel a genetic tendency towards the same sex. I don't have an answer. I know the answer is I can't change God's will. But the sympathy to people who are living through that almost unmentionable challenge to understand what they're going through. And finally, to be careful about not conflating the narrative, not transferring the narrative to Israel, and of course to realize that if we have to protect human dignity, sometimes we may have to pay a price. Sometimes. Okay, I'm going to pause now. Um, everybody famous saying, is there a question? Or? Thank you so much, Rabbi Targan. You quoted the Yushalmi that... Uh, <clears throat> Sometimes the Gentiles moved by someone's words or actions say that sometimes someone's moved to say blessed is the God of so-and-so and, -so. and uh, certainly with your lecture today I can certainly say arrogant uh, and uh, uh, type of type of Judaism that you're uh, professing and that uh, the, the, the exemplifying uh, um, type of deep thought that's often so lacking in society today. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to hog your time or anyone else's here. Uh, I see there are a few questions. If you have any questions, put them on the chat. Rabbi, I can uh, send them to everyone, and I uh, see there's one question about violence and how we deal with uh, violent responses, riots, um, and Rabbi would uh, be good enough to address any of those. Thank you. One second, I have to tell my son that I'm on Zoom. Uh, Ten minutes, I'm on a Zoom share, okay? I'm on a Zoom share, so do you need me? Okay, I'll see. I'll lock the door. Okay. My son needs to go to sleep, so <laughs> tell me it's all right. Good night, love you. Okay. Um... Look, it's pretty much a logistical question. Uh, no one supports violence. No one in their right mind supports violence. Logistically, if you clamp down immediately and too hard, you don't give anyone a voice or an expression. So you're just going to um, intensify and, and exacerbate situations. So you want to find that sweet spot where you can give people a voice. And not just a voice. I'm, I'm sure most people who express their voice express it politely and genteely and respectfully. And some people express it with a lot of anger and a lot of vindictiveness. And you have to allow people, like any, like just raising children, building a relationship with your wife, <laughs> teaching students, you have to allow people to express disappointment or else it festers. If, if we could just draw the line and say, yes, protest, yes, anger, yes, cursing, yes, but no looting and violence, that would probably be the place that I would try to land at. But I don't think people are looking to me for <laughs> how far should we go. But if, if we could just set our buttons, and we had an app, we could just set the protest with our, you know, with our app. <laughs> so it would be protests, and even if they're angry and, and furious, and they say negative things, because that people are really carrying a lot of pain in their hearts, and to stop at looting, but it sounds like most of the looters are just people exploiting a situation, so uh, I, I, that's a police decision, where to draw the line. Um, going down on one knee for solidarity. Um, am I still here? Yeah. Um, the second question from Pat Zeitlin. Um, look, there really are two questions here with going down on a knee. Number one, um, which a lot of Orthodox Jews have a problem with, are we allowed to express symbolism which doesn't have roots in Judaism? So, for example, when I visit graves on Memorial Day in Israel, 
to commemorate fallen soldiers, so I bring flour. Sometimes I forget, but I'm happy to put a flower there. I stand in silent attention during the siren. And a lot of Haredi Jews feel uncomfortable because what does it appear in Shulchan Arach? And we don't put flowers on graves. So I believe that modernity can provide certain symbolic expressions that aren't rooted in our classic sources that are still legitimate because they've been granted validity by common parlance. So I'm happy to deliver flowers because it's a sign of respect. I'm happy to stand quietly during a siren because it's a sign of respect. Um, others are a little bit uncomfortable, so they'd be uncomfortable with the knee. I'd be uncomfortable with the knee because it suggests submission. It probably doesn't. Here it suggests defiance, but for us who bow down to Hashem and Yom Kippur, who bow down to HaKadosh Baruch Hu three times a day, who think about all the people in Tanakh who bow down to Hashem, so it's just too close for comfort. So I feel uncomfortable with it um, going down on a knee. Yeah, I'd probably feel uncomfortable. What, what, what I probably would do is, like, if, if I was there and I'd really be insulting people by not going down on a knee, I would do it on a chair or something so that they see that I'm, I'm not immobile and I'm not callous to their interests if I want to create a league with them. It, it, best case scenario, I try to explain to them, I'm a religious person. I only bow to God. And you may be taking a knee for other reasons, but for me, this is a sign of reverence and obedience that I can't display to any man. If I felt that the situation really needed, that person really needed my compliance, not enough for my own sake, I'm afraid it'll insult me, but I feel like he really needed that. I put my knee on a chair or maybe on a pad or something. So I tell him, look, I'm with you, but I draw the line between bowing to anything but God, even if it's abstract. That's all my personal feeling, but I wonder what Rabbi Finkelstein would say about that. Uh, I appreciate your, your balanced uh, response. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Rabbi Targan, this was uh, amazing. We we're all, uh, you know, struggling with these issues, uh, some on one side, the other side, and, and just uh, to be able to hear such a nuanced approach. This is what they do at Yeshiva Tzion. This is what uh, Rabbi Targan is particularly good at. And uh, they probably uh, they hear it from you every week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, just thank you so much, and thank you all for joining us. Great to have you. I see a lot of wonderful comments here. Uh, that people just appreciated uh, this kind of uh, nuanced thought and, and to be able to, to break it all down for us and think it out through us for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to see everyone, and we should see each other yeah. under... And, and the holy, is the holy cow still open? <laughs> yeah. I want to say thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes. I just want to say thank you. I came in late, and this was one beautiful sheer to incredibly gifted teachers. Thank you so much, Reb Joel and Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. Thank you so much. It really healed my heart a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Your heart should be strong. Your heart and your lungs should stay strong. As we say in Memphis, Artie Yashukoyak. All right, well, have a great day.